Test, 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 test. Test, 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 test. Test, 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 test. One, two, three, four. Okay, let's gather in, folks. Whoa. Got a lot of fathers who want to go home and celebrate, so. Especially ones with broken legs. Chills, huh? Somebody's going to get me some water. Um. You forgot to give away these books. All right, I got a, um, a book to give away. If you guys will get in here, free books. You lazy dads. Uh, Doug Wilson is, uh, is a man who I think his uh, insights on parenting and marriage and fatherhood and all those other subjects are, uh, have been immeasurably helpful for me. Um, unfortunately, I read them by the time all my kids were 16 years old, or, but, but they, they gave substance and a winsome way to talk about what fatherhood is about. And his, I think his magnum opus is probably this book called Father Hunger. And we have three of them. We read these together as men as a church about five years ago. And uh, hopefully we'll get back on track and do it again. But this is an excellent book. Everything in this message today has been stolen from this book. So just so... For full disclosure, okay, it's, it's complete plagiarism. So if you read the book, you can go home right now and not listen to this sermon. So, uh, Joseph, <laughs> where's Joseph Patrick? Uh, Joseph texted this morning and said, there's a new face to the gathering church. I don't know if you knew that. But uh, if you go up on Google Maps and search Google Maps, you'll find a new face, and the face is mine. <laughs> Hopefully, they're going to get it up there for you. <laughs> is that one happy father? <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, it looks like a... <laughs> An old version of um, Joel Holstein, I think. <laughs> and I don't know why that's on the front page. You know, you webmasters better get your act together because people are going to think they're coming to see an old Joel Holstein again, a motivational speak speech. You know, <laughs> you know, you SEO guys, your search engine optimizations. I know there's a lot of Taylor members here. But Winslow's, Alan, you look much better than I do to be on the face of this church. And you probably have more members in this church that have the last name Winslow than I do. So get your act together. Post your pictures on the gathering. Get my schnoz out of there. <laughs> you know, I, look, I, I scrolled down that. And there's like three or four pictures of backs of people. Have you ever have you done in, in the worship service a picture of somebody's back? I'm like, what's with that? How does that get on Google? So what kind of church is that? You're, you're looking at somebody's behind all the time. I don't know, but, but I think we better have Forrest Gump up there, right? 
just just put Forrest Gump up there and and admit we're all Forrest Gump's dads, right? We just we really we're all sort of semi retarded, right? At least I am, and we walk through life sort of. Uh, tripping up along the way, but for some reason, God's graceful, and like Joseph, he works things all together for the good, right? And that's what God does for us. Um, the text today, and I'll read it now and then make a few comments, and then we'll enter our, is, is one verse, Matthew three seventeen, the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is the inauguration, the commencement, the sending out of Jesus in his public ministry when he was 30 years old. So let's read it together. Let's start at 316. And being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, or coming upon him. And behold, look, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You know, my life, as I reflect on fatherhood, I want to give everybody a word of encouragement today and not be really discouraging. So I'm going to share a couple stories. I won't go unhinged like Matt promised. But I do have a couple stories. One was reminded to me just a couple weeks ago by Matt himself. When I, sometimes I go extemporaneous. Right, and at Household of Faith Church, I preached there, and then have these. When I go extemporaneous, I'd say things that were just bizarre. They're all tongue in cheek, granted, right? They're all tongue in cheek. They didn't really mean them, but afterwards there would be this elder huddle. You know, Greg would call the group together. We'd all huddle right near the end of the the sermon, and I have to go back up and recant for what I said. <laughs> I said I really didn't mean that. Well, one story I shared was, and this is a true story, my family took road trips early on, and I had like five kids or something at the time, and inevitably, the first week of the road trip was just chaos. My kids' attitudes were terrible, they were mad at each other, they were, they were, they were being selfish, they were fighting, and all in one car, we're driving out there, and finally, I just get fed up, right? And so I pull off at this, this county park, and I remember to this day, there's this split rail sense, fence, and I lined them all up. So like Stephen at the oldest and Lindsay and Krista and Kelly and, and Sam. There's probably about five of them. And, and I said to them, I said, I must have been listening to a Piper sermon or something at the time. <laughs> I said, if Jesus came right now with the attitudes you guys have, you'd go straight to hell and you'd be damned. Got back in the car. It was a great trip. I think, I think it's a great practice, right? I think I'd even be more forceful next time. But you obviously, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Felt like Colonel Clink. Has everybody heard of Colonel Clink? See, you young generation. Who's, I know my kids have all watched Hogan's Heroes. Colonel Clink with this monocle walking up and down. And said, you guys are idiots. And, you, and he has no, absolutely no authority at all, right? And the kids are all, yeah, dad, yeah, dad. So, um, yeah. One advantage of having a lot of kids. One advantage. There's a lot of advantages. But one advantage of having a lot of kids is that you eventually figure out, <laughs> you make every mistake in the book. And by the eighth kid, you finally have, you think you have it figured out, Right? And I think 
A good example is in our first courtship. I really early on figured I had courtship down, you know, and Stephen starts uh, pursuing Larissa. And I thought, I got this. I know how to do this, right? I'm confident. I inserted, asserted myself, forced my way through it, and then fell flat on my face. And, and uh, you can ask Stephen Larissa what that meant. But over the years, in several courtships and several marriages, six, I've realized, grown to realize that I can really trust my kids with the spouse they choose. And I can trust them to act in a forthright, in moral, morally uh, acceptable fashion. In fact, I think if my daughters met a guy that acted unforwardly, I think they'd, they'd just promptly slap him bald-headed and say, get out of here, right? So... Um, but I still don't have my act together. Uh, recently, Brooke and I were having a discussion of whether you should hold hands before you're married, right? And my typical response is 1 Corinthians 7.1, which in New American Standard reads, it is not good for a woman to touch, not good for a man to touch a woman, right? And I said, well, obviously that's an idiom. It's sort of a, it's a, a Jewish idiom that means that the Jews thought that if you're going to marry a woman, that's the only privilege, that's the privilege you get. You get to touch them. So I said, so why would you hold the hand of a person that wouldn't be your wife or husband? If you don't know that for, well, Brooke promptly tells me that Krista and Kelly held hands before they were engaged. I said, didn't happen. Didn't happen, right? So I promptly called my little lieutenants, Krista and Kelly. I texted them. I said, you guys didn't hold hands before you were engaged. And, and, and Kelly says, absolutely, Dad. And Krista says, don't you remember the day I held hands with Dan Goots and at the beach? And she goes, epic day. <laughs> They were what we were at the beach with them, and they were walking down the beach. And those who are familiar with the road's end, the road parallels the beach, right? And you can see the beach as it goes between the houses, right? And they were walking right parallel to Don and I as we were walking down the road. And I'm looking, and I see them. They go, and I, I go, he's holding her hand. Don said, no, no, no. So we wait to the next house. Oh my God, he's holding her hand. <laughs> and you know. <laughs> You, you ever seen the movie with Steve Martin, right? <laughs> and there's a the young man brings his daughter and he's engaged and Steve Martin's watching the young man put his hand on her leg. You remember that episode? Has anybody watched that movie? Okay. And Steve Martin is going like this. That's how I felt. Yeah. <laughs> So even in my old age, I forget the rules I set for my kids in their courtship. I've grown to just appreciate Proverbs 30:18, which I quote a lot well to my last two kids that are considering marriage. That I enjoy the mystery. Proverbs 30:18 says, "There are three things that are too mar- wonderful for me, four that I do not understand: the eagle, the serpent, the ship, and the way of a man with a maid." Right? It's a mystery. 
And every courtship has been totally different. And finally, I give up after eight kids of having any control in that and trusting my children. Man, it's a high privilege to be called dads. We have this amazing honor of being called fathers by God himself. The very same name and title that God gives himself. And we have been identified with the very identity and nature of God. Is both an incredible blessing and also a weighty responsibility. And we should feel the weight today of it upon us. Our child sees or does not see God through his father. Yet we live in an age of father hunger, as Douglas Wilson calls it. Many of you had absent fathers or no fathers at all. You had silent or angry fathers, passive dads. So and today we look just at this political sphere and the leaders in this country. We have very few good examples of what it means to be a father and a husband anymore. Our culture is so disrupted. But we fathers contain comfort in one half, one fact. That in human history, we have an example of the perfect father and son relationship. And we see it here in our text today, don't we? At this moment, between this father and this son, it is the first time God speaks in the whole New Testament. And we hear the voice of a father. And these are the words he says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And these words are instructive. These words compressed into 10 Greek words in the original Greek, it seems, are enough to assure the Son, the divine sinless Son, Jesus Christ, of his identity and then to launch him into the mission. And what's so significant, I think, here is what the Father did not say. 10 words in the Greek. He could have said so much more. But he uses, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there are enough for the divine son of God to go out in some mysterious way and to go with confidence and go he goes, go he does. And we are all the beneficiaries of that today, aren't we? The son's obedience. So we will ask of our text today, how did the perfect father send his son, his own son? And I would suggest God sent his son by being present First point, by speaking and by being pleased. And so for us, these words are instructive for fathers. To send your sons and daughters, be present, be speaking, and be pleased. But first of all, I want to say something, and this is probably the most important point and the shortest point of the whole message. Right now, Dad, you are always sending your children. You are always sending your children. You are always sending your children. Just by sitting today, I see a number of you with infants in your seats, laps, and toddlers. You're sending out, and that's your little girl. Just your decision today to go to church instead of some sport event, or even celebrating the secular holiday of Father's Day, is right now sending your son to be a future father. Doug Wilson talks about children being like wet concrete, and it's a great analogy. He says, when you pour concrete, once you start pouring, you have a limited amount of time before it sets up, don't you? And if you procrastinate or delay, you have some results, and it's usually a pile of rubble instead of a patio if we don't focus on it. 
Kids are like that. So don't procrastinate. You're sending your children now. Don't wait until Sally is 21 years old to teach her how to choose and respond to a young suitor. Don't wait until Johnny is 21 to learn how to work hard, take responsibility, and find a job. Doug Wilson is good at saying, talking about parental folly, has a long, long fuse, and it doesn't explode until 10 years later. So those of you who have six months old, eight months old, one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, start sending them out today. That's my first point. Secondly, be present. The picture of the heavens opening in this text was a common figure, is a common figure for God's dramatic action. A breaking forth of revelation, a breaking forth of God himself. And many scholars refer to Isaiah 64.1 and 63.15 to get the significance here. In Isaiah 64.1, the prophet Isaiah says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. And that's what's happening here. The heavens are being opened up. And who can imagine what that looks like? When the heavens open, God comes down. And Isaiah 63, 15 says this, Look down from heaven, see your holy, and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirring of your heart and your compassion are restrained towards me. The prophet's crying out, says, open up, open up the heavens. Because when they're closed, we don't see your compassion, your zeal, or your mercy, or the stirring of your hearts. And I think I could take this metaphorically in this text. And apply it to our children. It's probably in maybe a little unusual sense. But I think it's applicable here. In your little girl's heart. You can almost hear an echo of Isaiah's voice here. Saying daddy. Where are you? Where are your mercies? Where are your mighty deeds? Where's your zeal? Where's the stirring of your hearts? Please come down. Just be here. And when a father quote unquote comes down to be present with his little girl or her strapping his strapping son it makes all the difference in the world my friends and here's a mystery in order to go the perfect man Jesus needed his father to come down first most scholars I've read say this In some mysterious way, the divine son, the perfect son, the son without sin, had this fundamental need as a human, as a man, to have his father come down and sense his presence. At this baptism, at this inauguration of Jesus' ministry, Jesus needed his father to be present and felt. How much more in this culture we live in of absent dads, our kids are crying out for this. They're crying out for their fathers to just come down. Your son is a depository just waiting to be filled by his dad. So my first point, really, after sending him out, just if I could give you one advice, one bit, just be present. Open the heavens and come down, down to your children. 
There are so many cul-de-sacs of distraction in life that we get from sports to media to social media to, to technology to our jobs, our careers, our investments, our wealth. They're just looking there, just waiting to suck our time away from our kids. Let me, let me just bring this down to earth a little bit, unpack it. And I don't have every, I'm not trying to address every situation in fatherhood or address all the issues of father. I just want to bring a couple points home today and then we'll, we'll close. You know, this aspect of coming down and being in your children's eyes should be so evident to us fathers, but it really isn't. So I want to just give you at least one suggestion and how that happens. And, and I'm thankful for James K. Smith in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, for this, for sort of giving a, a framework for this. He writes in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, about this phrase, cultural liturgies. And it gets a good phrase to memorize and to think about that encapsulates the idea of being present in your children's life. Cultural liturgies, cultural daily habits and practices that inculcate all your life. He writes this, humans are primarily desiring animals and not thinking beings. They're desiring animals, not primarily thinking beings. In other words, they don't make decisions through a thought process as much as through what they desire or want. Formulates all their decisions or informs all their decisions. And he continues, what defines us is what we love. And we Christians should know that more than anybody, right? What defines us is what we love. And our ultimate love and desire or desire is shaped, it's shaped by practices, not ideas. It's shaped, our love is shaped by what we do, not by what we think. Or that are merely communicated to us. Okay, this book was an eye-opener for me because it says that habits and practices shape our loves, not the mere communication of ideas. He's not dismissing, dismissing communication of truth or dialogue or discussion or knowledge, as important as those are, but he asserts that dialogue and teaching alone will never shape a person's heart. That is amazing. If you can get your mind around that, that is simply Amazing. You think of our public schools, the whole format of our public schools and public education is to frame their thinking and not their loves and their desires. Fathers, sometimes we think that the primary method to get our children to be good is by simply getting them to conform to some standard, whatever that may be. And hear me here, fathers. Your task... Your task as fathers is to not simply to get your children to conform to the standard. Your task as fathers is not simply to get your children to conform to the standard, but to love the standard. To love the standard. You hear... With that saying, the only way 
to get people to conform the standard is by loving the standard. And the only way you can get them to love the standard is by capturing their hearts. Look, you don't just tell your child to love the standard. You will never be able to get them love standard unless you first love the standard. And love is only seen by living the standard. What James Smith, and I think what the Bible would say, it's the daily practices and habits of our life, the cultural liturgies of your family life, that will ultimately shape the hearts of your children for good or bad. You are capturing your children's heart to some love. As Doug Wilson would say, atheism starts in the home. That's a pretty heavy statement. Young fathers, we grow up so hopeful and optimistic. And what he's trying to tell us, that atheistic thoughts in our children start not when they're 18 or 19 or 20 years old. They start at six months or eight months or one year or two years or three years as they watch their father come down or not come down. And when he does come down, what are his loves? And those loves capture a child's heart. Sure, we speak. The father eventually speaks, right? He does speak. But his speech has no value truly until he lives it in the ethos of his life. And that's what captures our children, will capture our children's heart. I think we lose it another way. When we give way to the notion that parental responsibility is merely conforming or conformity to a standard, we begin to think as fathers that our authority can be expressed merely by asserting or enforcing it. Like I did at our first courtship, Right? Granted, sometimes (laughs) you will, at some point, have to assert your fatherly authority and force it. That will happen someday. And it will probably be the day when your daughter, as Doug Wilson says, (laughs) is asking to go date a biker. And we're not talking about a mountain biker. Okay? And you have to write that check that says no. Right, You may have a checkbook that represents your office, but if you're not putting in through the daily liturgies, the daily affections, the daily time you're spent with that child, forming in him loves or her in loves, when that time comes, you know, that in theory, in a metaphor, is you're putting money, you're putting cash in the account, right? And someday you're going to have to write a check. You got to tell your daughter you can't go biking with a motorcycle gang member. And you don't want to have non-sufficient funds in that count. You don't want a bounce check. A father's authority can never be separated from his life. Real fatherly authority is lived and lived in such a way as to make it winsome. Winsome. In the eyes of all his kids. Can I say it again? 
father's authority can never be separated from his life. Real fatherly authority is lived and lived in such a way that it is a winsome, winsome, attractive in the eyes of your children. Coming down, rending the heavens, what does that look like? For a Christian dad, it should be attractive. It should be contagious. It should be called influence. The problem is we live, fathers, and we have to come to grips. We live in a winsome way to the wrong things. Can I say that? There are so many cul-de-sacs, distracting cul-de-sacs, that we go round and round and round in, and pretty soon 10 years is gone. Your child is 12 years old, and you've lost that opportunity to be winsome for the right things. And then at that time, we expect to retain our authority at the worst possible moment later in your kiddo's life when it is needed most, but then it may be too late. Like I said, when your 18-year-old daughter is asking to go date a biker. Winsome. Winsome presence. Just look at Jesus's, uh, I think Matt's preaching next week on the parable of the treasure. The significance of the parable of the treasure is simply this. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. As one sentence, one, in fact, he does two, two parables on the same thing, one of the treasure, one of the pearls. But the essence of that parable is that this, what it says in the Greek, it said, literally, this man who finds his treasure is carried away by joy, carried away by joy. And for joy for it, he goes and sells everything he has for the treasure. That's the winsome life your kids need to see. If you want to capture their hearts. The fathers, the kingdom of God at its very core, at its very core, Piper is, John Piper is so good at, at teaching on this, at its very core is contagious joy. Oh my goodness, it's the second fruit of the Holy Spirit, is it? Love, Joy. Peace. Galatians 5.23. Is this the climate of your home? If not, Houston, we have a problem. So man, take, take right now our pulse of your household right now. Is it a household of contagious joy and laugh, contagious laughter and happiness? And if it isn't, we have a problem. Passivity is not the answer. So, Father's atheism starts at home. And fathers, you are always speaking. You are always speaking. Doug Wilson says this again. Your fa- you fathers are speaking about God the Father constantly. You don't have the option of shutting up. What you're saying may be true or false. But you are not in the position where you may refuse to say anything. Do you catch the gravity of that? You are not in the position that you can refuse to say anything because by your passivity, you're saying something about God.
The question right now you want to ask yourself, are you good news to your kiddos? Are you good news to your boy and to your girl? You know, especially when your kids are young, you're God to your kids and they learn what God is like by watching you and much sooner than you think. So what are they watching? And when they grow older, it may become even harder because they can be so ungrateful, so dull, unwitty, and insensitive. That age, when a ch- the hardest age of a child's life, when like 12 to you know, puberty and adolescence, is such, such a difficult time. Yet that's the very time that they become just like deers in the headlights. And you talk to things. I've been talking to you about this for 10 years. Why can't you pick up the clothes in your bedroom? Right? I see some people down there. But in some of us, we talked a few weeks ago about prodigals. I meant, what if I can't be present? What if I can't, what if I don't have that aspect in my life here maybe he's his hardest left or they left town you still can do this you can still be good news to your kids you must be good news to your kids at that period of time you gotta be there with winsome sayings and winsome proverbs and wisdom words from God my advice here be like God be good news Stay contagious for the right things. And that's what I say, by the way, for prodigals. I thank you so much for Lucas's sharing at our party last night and your vulnerability. And, and I, I don't have a prodigal, all right? But I think this advice is the advice I give to somebody who does. And the Lucas's are just like... Shining examples of that. You talked about the struggle of being good news or bad news or mad or, you know, you got to get your life. I think my advice would be this. Continue to be contagious for the right things. Be tethered to the local church. Be passionate about Jesus. Keep reading the word. Keep talking about how wonderful he is. Be contagious to those ones that have left the faith. Don't be this, this, this dire, sour, surly person who, said, who is always dictating to them an image of God that they already believe. And you're just confirming it. That there's no grace. Be a giver. Be good news. Be a giver, not grasper. Philippians 2, 3. What a great verse. Jesus, in spite of being in the form of, in, you know, I, I translate this as Jesus precisely because he existed as God gave. That's the nature of God, to be a giver, not a grasper. Not in spite of being God, but because of being God, the Greek seems to say that he, his very nature is to give. And one aspect of that is to continue and always give. And again, last night was such a good example. Always give without expecting anything in return. I know there's dark times in a lot of our lives where we said, dang it, I have given so much to this child. And I'm not getting anything in return. 
I was reminded of this verse just last night. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. For God himself, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil man. You know the hardest person to be grateful to is an ungrateful son. Okay, or daughter. And my friends, they show it all the time, don't they? They just, they just don't get it sometimes. And that's the time to be good news. And I think we see you echoed in Paul's words too. Do you think lightly in Romans 2, 4, the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That last four words could take a lifetime to understand. His kindness, his goodness, his loving kindness, steadfast love is what, leads all of us to repent. It's not a shrill condemnation, guilt-ridden. As I talk on child discipline, but it's not teaching on child discipline. But let me just say this about child discipline. One of the main forms you can be present for your kids is to discipline and chastise your children. And I cannot say it more soberly or seriously and so dogmatically. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves. And everyone who is without discipline is an illegitimate child. And Proverbs says he who draws a rod hates his son. We need to see that discipline is a lot of things, but two things is primarily. One, it's inclusion. Right? Father loves us. He includes us by showing discipline. My kids knew they were a tailor when they were under my discipline. We know we are sons of God when we're under his discipline. In the same way, my children knew I'm a tailor. My dad loves me so much. That he's going to cross my will. But discipline is also restoration of fellowship. Right? It's bringing them back. It's a picture of the gospel. Forget repentance and forgiveness. And if you don't have anything to restore them to. You also have a problem. That's why discipline doesn't work anymore. Your, your family is not a garden of yes. It's not a joyful place to be. There's no fellowship. You got to come down. You got to be present. And lastly, God spoke. God spoke and he was pleased. Look, God the Father assures his son. He says, this is my son. He expresses his love for his son, my beloved one. By the way, you can put daughter in there too. Expresses his pleasure in his son in whom I am well pleased. And we had to ask ourselves, did Jesus really need this? (laughs) Scholar, scholar Christopher Wright writes this. He says, these words had immense significance for Jesus. The awareness of God being his father and himself being God's son is probably the deepest foundation of Jesus' selfhood. To human eyes, Jesus was the son of an unimportant carpenter in insignificant Galilee, he continues. But in God's sight, however, he is my beloved son in whom I delight. This was his real identity. It was enough. God pours it out there. 
and he sends them out to the wilderness. If this was immensely significant to Jesus, how much more is it for our kids to hear affirmation? Assurance, you're my son. You're my daughter. I remember early on, many times, my wife have this, and I have this ongoing debate, right? I will tell my daughter, I say, you are beautiful. You are, <laughs> you're beautiful. And my wife, my wife and I struggle, and we haven't resolved this yet. She says, well, they're going to get, they're going to get infatuated with themselves. They're going to become, dece- uh, what's the word, conceited, you know. And I asked back her, so when did you become conceited when I told you you were beautiful? We're afraid to say words that are so powerful and their creative effect in our children's life for fear of some things that are not supported. I always told my kids when I'm with them, I say, you're my favorite child. Remember that? Say, you're my favorite girl. They go, Daddy, that's not true. You like so. I said, well, right now, you're my favorite girl because I'm with you. The effect, I think, of that is such affections ties that bind that when the tough decisions come in their life, they're going to say, I'm going to choose my friends or my peers or I'm going to choose my father. And they're going to say, I choose my father. Not as a form of manipulation, but because of the deep and abiding affections, you captured their heart. For God. And I'd be remiss. Okay, I'm going to get this done. If I didn't note, and it seems to be even more important, the first time God speaks, he speaks the scriptures. Okay, and this is what all the commentators talk about, so I have to mention it. God who orchestrated creation with a word speaks his scriptures. He speaks, he quotes the Old Testament in this. In saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, he's quoting Isaiah 42, 1, which we read today, right? Which is the first song of, song of the servants of the Lord about the suffering servant that will end up dying like a lamb to save his people. And the second one is Psalm 2, 7, which is, which is sort of the, the commencement, the coronation of the Davidic king. And then Jesus, when he heard those words, he instantly knew and was assured, I am the king. I am the king that's going to reign through earth with a rod and iron. And I'm going to restore all things by the power of my might. Yet at the same time, I'm the suffering servant. What does that mean for us? Well, it means first Jesus even needed the scriptures to know who, to help Jesus understand Jesus. But we need the scripture. You can have a contagious happy home. You can live, but you can still live in a vacuum of the scriptures, a vacuum void of the scriptures, saturating and shaping the contours of your family's thinking and liturgies. And if it isn't, all that contagious joy would be vanity. The obvious application here is, dads, you will never shape the contours of your son's thinking unless you, less, unless you first let the Bible shape yours. Can I hear an amen? amen? Men, start reading the Bible. Don't go to blogs, all right? Don't 
read the Bible for hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years until it shapes all the contours you're thinking, the optics, the lens whereby you see things. So when somebody comes in with an influence from the world that wants to shape you into its mold, you say, I don't know the exact verse. No. Right? That's what you want for your kids. And if he's not shaping your thinking, how can you have those winsome statements that it says in Proverbs? Says father, it's father speaking. Father says, my son, listen to my sayings. And years of life will be added to you. Proverbs 3. That's an amazing thought. That you can say things that are so winsome and so encapsulate truth that you can say to your son or daughter, say, if you listen to these things, you will be blessed. Amazing. You know, when Jesus gets sent out into the wilderness right after, what's amazing about those temptations is not that Jesus shared a particular verse. You know, usually commentators say, well, Jesus said, you know, thou shalt not live by bread alone and to the devil's temptation for temporary satisfaction, turn rocks to stone. And they said, well, he had that verse to prepare to share for that. I can see the merit in that, but I think what's more important is not that he shared a particular verse, but he had a particular verse to share. You see the difference? Do you really see the difference in those two things? The word was in Jesus. Okay. And lastly, be pleased. I think you got the point. I'm being a little redundant, and I'm just going to read a couple quotes, and we'll quit. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Here's a quote. The first thing we are told about the relationship of the father to the son is that the father thought his son was doing a great job. The first thing we are told in the New Testament about the relation of the father son, that his son was doing a great job. So this is what fatherhood is like. This is where fatherhood reaches its ultimate expression. In human history, there will never be a more perfect father-son moment than this moment at the baptism of Jesus between the father and son. And this is the keynote. This is the keynote. Pleasure. Pleasure. This is the pitch that a father-son-daughter relationship needs to match. Pleasure. Is your home a haven of good news? Another quote. This is from a non-believer, Phyllis McGinley, written in the 50s. But I thought it was just so poignant and so, so like our family. And the like of many families that I know... She says this, happy families own a surface similarity of good cheer. For one thing, they like each other, which is quite a different thing from loving. And for another, almost always one entirely personal treasure, a sort of purseful of domestic humor, which they have accumulated against many rainy days. This humor is not necessarily witty, The jokes may be incomprehensible to outsiders and the laughter spring from the most trivial of sources. But the jokes and the laughter belong entirely to the family. That's not a chew toy. 
The only ones that are laughing, what? My, my kids, right? What about the cash bar? <laughs> I can't remember them all, but I remember all of my kids, Sam. But there's so much to be said here. Dad, be winsome, be contagious, laugh a lot. Don't be stingy with your time or money. Don't be so focused on long-term plans that you forget the living wealth sitting in your lap. Live modestly. Have fun with your kids. Celebrate their victories and triumphs. Mourn with them in their failures and defeats. Don't berate them for their mistakes or missteps. Tell her she's a good girl. Tell him he's the dude for protecting his sister and chopping the wood. Laugh at yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously, dads. You are not the center of the universe. At the same time, help your kids not to take themselves too seriously. They are not the center of the universe either. Yet watch them play on the floor. Let them get the room messy. Go to their events. Take interest. Gaze with them and thoughtfully answer those silly questions they ask. Create silly memories. Take videos. Turn off the TV. Read books to them. Read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to them and tell them that's what they are like. (laughs) Take a vacation once in a while. Have regular traditions. Eat together every night. Read the Bible together every day. Have a house full of joy and that feels to your guests like they need to laugh. Create inside jokes. Repent a lot. Don't be a critic. Be a learner with your kids. Listen to them. Play shoots and ladders or Candyland or even Old Maid. Even when the Old Maid card is so crinkled, everyone knows where she is. Let your home be a garden. And then at 18, 19, 20, you can send them out to conquer the world, but they will never conquer it on their own terms. They are the only living wealth you will ever leave behind. You're always sending them out. Fathers, don't underrate your influence. You are a gift to your kids. Yes, you are Forrest Gump. As we all are. But God gives us this word. This word. This word. I want to pray. In close, I want to pray for every father here that I, I hope this was convicting or encouraging one side or the other, convicting and encouraging that you're doing the right thing or convicting say, hey, I need to ratchet up the joy in my home. I want you to stand up who wants prayer and I'm just going to pray a short prayer for you if that's okay. Fathers who desire. I have one last question. Fathers, look into your eyes of your child and see your grandchild. Look into the eyes of your child and see your grandchild and thereby act. Okay. Father, we do. God, we're so grateful that you're a father. <laughs> what a marvelous gift. We can look to your word and we can see what a father is like, Lord. Albeit briefly today, Lord. I pray the release of courage. I release fearless fathers in this church. Fathers, Lord, that, are, that get the contagion of joy in their life for you. As the superior satisfaction of anything in this earth, Lord. Money, wealth, career, jobs, toys, sports. Let all these go, Lord. 
to the high calling of fatherhood, Lord. Bless these households, Lord. May we see two, three generations of believers, Lord. Fulfill your promise, Lord, of multiple generations, Lord, to your faithful people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.